Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. Happy holidays! Since it's that time of year, we've decided a good topic to discuss would be about supporting large applications over the holidays and what the best practices are in order to make sure our customers are having 100% availability over the holidays. Let's go around the table and give introduction to today's panelists. Jem, you want to start it off? Jem Young, Senior Software Engineer at Netflix. And I'm Mars Julian. I'm a front-end software engineer in the Bay Area, and all thoughts are my own. Stacey Lennon, I'm a Senior Front-end Engineer at Atlassian, and all my thoughts are Mars's. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a Software Engineering Manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front-end Happy Hour podcast, we love to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword was? Availability. All right, availability. I think I've already said it once, but it doesn't count. But from now on, if we say the word availability, we're all taking drinks. All right, let's jump right in. How important is it for each of your products? Like we all work on different products and companies in the Bay Area. How important is it to be relatively up during the holidays? Uh, I guess like for for Bitbucket um, at Atlassian, it doesn't change. Like we don't have to be more available or less available. We we our availability is like, you know, we need to be, be available. Be available. Cheers. Five drinks. Cheers. Everybody Jeez. have five drinks. Terrible keyword. <laughs> Already. <laughs> Already. Already. All of my thoughts are available. <laughs> I'll drink to your thoughts. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't think it's any different in terms. It doesn't change, but maybe we're a little bit more careful. Or um, recently we uh, started doing this process. Uh, just to try and improve some quality of stuff that's been going out. So we have this process called the chopper, the chopper process. <laughs> and we get to the chopper. We lovingly say, we call it choppa. <laughs> oh, I like it. But it's basically uh, having a discussion about some of the changes that are going out with some of the leadership just to make sure that everyone's like, okay, that sounds good. You know, thoroughly tested, thoroughly made sure that this is, you know, uh, robust and monitored and has metrics and analytics and all the things. So, um, that's one thing that we're we're doing as of more recent. I don't know that's necessarily special for the holidays. I was going to ask that too. Is it's it sounds like it's probably said you matters all the time. So you're wanting to make sure that there's that. So this is like a new practice, not necessarily just for the holidays. Yeah, and I know a while ago someone had tried to kind of say like, oh, there's this really important event happening. We should have like a a code freeze. And there's a lot of arguments against that. Actually, a lot of people push back on that, saying like, oh, there's more risk if we just like queue code up for a while and like the next release that we do is going to be like massive and high maybe risky and so there's quite a bit of discussion about that so kind of try to not do that and just constantly push out every day if we can yeah i mean i think availability oh no <laughs> Cheers. it's important i think one for two reasons like the one like what stacy mentioned in terms of like making sure that you have a reliable product but also if you think about it during the holidays how there aren't often many engineers around to support things if things go badly um and so it's really important to make sure that things are stable, like one, for the consumers, but also for those who are maintaining it and the, the sanity of the engineers who are actually like working behind it um, to sort of like acknowledge that a lot of work goes into maintaining a website and someone needs to be on call for that potentially. I think for us at Netflix, customers are usually okay to not have Netflix running over the holidays. Yeah, they're fine with it. 
<laughs> Definitely don't. Get I'm it. not fine with oh, that. You know, my Netflix customer. went down for five minutes the other day. I was not happy. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even close to the holiday. You did it to yourself by not working there. <laughs> yeah, I left and they blacklisted my. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We actually just put Mars in downtime. <laughs> Very sad. I I agree with both what you're saying. Is I think it's just important to be thoughtful you know, and what we're pushing code around. And actually at Netflix, we we do have a bit of a code freeze specifically around the holidays to just try and be more thoughtful and mitigate any risk. It's important. I think Mars, what you're getting at too, is there's not no one around. So if there's a big failure or outage, everyone's on holidays and that, that could be really bad to try and fix something at that time. Does that mean that things queue up? Like, do you have like a staging environment? So like people that are still working and like merging stuff, is it... Like, does the queue get kind of big? So, like, post-freeze? It's it's, it's really about um, having the right metrics in place and having the right people looking at these metrics and analyzing that. Then you can push and you're fine because you you have confidence in your metrics. It's when people don't have that sort of stability or idea around availability. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, <laughs> that people get, like, really cagey. Mm-hmm. And, like, I... I I get people that don't want to do a code freeze and like you can queue up a lot of tasks and things like that, but it's kind of indicative of their system that they don't have any reliability on their metrics and they don't do canaries and things like that, which is, you know, we're, we're a big company. We plan for this. Like Netflix in particular is really, really good about failing over and like planning for the worst, worst case scenario. I say this and they'll probably be like a massive outage or something. <laughs> oh, man. Knock, knock, knock on, on wood. wood. <laughs> um, don't want anybody to ruin the Irishman. Almost four hours of fun. Have you watched it? I have. Fun? Yeah. I don't know. I only got like an hour through it. <laughs> I'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, I couldn't, be... co- I couldn't commit to a three-hour movie. Oh, it's so it's good, three and though. a half hours. Three and a oh, half, yeah. I'm sorry. It's... Excuse me. To me, there's a difference between like three and... Because three is like, okay, you're Lord of the Rings. So you go over three and a half. I'm like, okay, what? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Okay. I enjoyed it. Really? Yeah. We should talk about you it. You mentioned uh, Canary. What I, Can you define that? Because maybe a lot of people don't have the luxury of having such things. Luxury Canaries, you say? Luxury Canaries. Oh, sounds <laughs> well, like a Valley cool. Yeah, yeah. What is a luxury <laughs> Canary? It's gilded in gold. gold. <laughs> Diamonds. Oh, yeah. I need it. It's part need of the 12 luxury. days of Christmas. Oh. <laughs> or whatever holiday you may right. celebrate. Yes. Or Hanukkah. We did just do an inclusive episode. So. We do. That's why we say happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah. Uh, Canary is you have your production build and you have your pre-production build as in the next thing that's going to go live. You segment a certain amount of traffic, whatever percentage you want, to this new build and you watch your metrics. You watch everything, make sure nothing's going catastrophically wrong. Then you have like certain uh, confidence intervals. You say, hey, this is passing. The error rate's low. The Canary's good. It harkens back. See, now I'm going into detail to the, the old adage, uh, Canary in a coal mine, because birds can smell toxic gas where humans can't. And that's why they had canaries down in coal mines, so then it's canary. But I'm sure you know this already. All those mines in Wisconsin. <laughs> what? <laughs> cheese mines. <laughs> I want to live in a cheese mine. I would definitely, because you can eat your way out of that. Oh, that seems great. like a great challenge. <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> canaries, and we got down to cheese mine. I love it. I mean, we, t- we talk, I think we've all agreed that uptime, especially during the holidays, I think in general, I, I think all of our companies need to be, we're striving for being 100% available. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. What do your companies do to make sure there's roughly 100% service, especially over the holidays? Jam, you mentioned doing a code freeze. Stacy, it sounds like you guys do something similar, but 
maybe still push code. Like you're still doing oh, yeah. some, but it maybe a little more rigor around should we be pushing this? Yeah, I think also, I mean, I think we've mentioned it before, but having people on call um, so that either if you have automated systems in place in order to fail over gracefully, but also when something does go wrong, you can have someone on the line sort of on call during the holidays, unfortunately, to make sure they can restore the service is, is pretty important. On call. What does that mean to be on call? Like, are you just literally sitting around waiting for something to go wrong? Or does your companies have like something to page you? Like, what does that look like to be on call? I think it goes back also to like what Jem said about having metrics. Like, um, a lot of times being on call just means you are paged based on some sort of metric that your company has deemed important uh either it's going it's probably going in the wrong direction whether that means it's like has too much traffic or not enough traffic or, or whatever you're looking for and when that metric hits a, sort of like a threshold it sort of pages the on call for the engineer who's responsible for that service and by page i mean like text phone call slack like a like literally a barrage of messages like no matter what time of day um and i think a lot of times on call can be scary but it's really about triaging the problem it's not necessarily about fixing it so you just kind of look dig into sort of what triggered the issue and what else might be going on around it like what other context you have and you get out of bed whatever time of day it is and you you start to sort of like engage other people who might be able to help too or at least that's the way i've experienced on call so if there are other perspectives it would be good to hear that as well yeah i think that's a nice like more like a sophisticated on-call where it is based on like having tooling measuring something so like your api calls the, re the response time for api calls is you know reaching you know going higher and higher than a particular threshold and then then it starts automated alerting through like tooling so like uh we use ops genie so like that will start sending alerts out and you have an apps genie app on your phone and then you get you get paged for that and then yeah it's about triaging and then for us especially it's really like try and figure out you know how many customers are affected what's the like are we getting tons of support calls is is the rate of rate of support calls going really high then you start escalating it to like different tiers of uh issues like a sub one sub zero sub two that kind of thing um, so there's all these factors that go into like how severe something is. And then based on that is like how you approach fixing it. Either you like, oh, it's this, it's something that's easily fixable and deployed fast. But most of the time it's like, oh, the prior deploy was great. So let's just roll back and use it and having tooling that makes it really easy to like roll back to a prior release instantaneously and then being able to fix, quote, fix, but just basically like Make, it sh make sure no customers are affected anymore and then figure out really what happened. I like that ability to roll back too because like, especially at like Mars getting woken up at 2 a.m. It's like- That has happened before. Yeah, I'm sure it definitely has. And, and you don't necessarily have the ability to pull all the right people in to fix something like that. And that takes time. Not even, even if, even if you were all in the office, it still takes time for someone to like actually go and fix that. And so just having that ability to roll back and say, yeah, that sucks that we had to roll back to the, the previous state, but now we take the time, fix it appropriately, and be sure that we are shipping the right build out now. I think that's really cool. I, I think the, the important note about being on call and rollbacks, like that's one, make sure you can roll back. There are plenty of companies that don't have the ability. They're like, yeah. once it's out, it's out. There is no rolling back. Uh, that's a bad idea. But so if you can structure your system to not do that. But the second one is practice doing that. Like the number of uh, threads you see on Reddit of uh, like some catastrophic data failure or something like that. People are like, oh, we have offsite backups and all that. But no one actually ever verified that they were working or that they can 
actually roll back and back up their data and stuff like that, you have to practice it and rehearse it because like, who cares if you can roll back if no one actually knows how to do it. So yeah, it's, it's like, like, it's like testing the systems. Essentially. Yeah, it, yeah. It's part of like part of your on call ability. That's why, uh, here's a, here's a pro tip for career advice. If you want to make a lot of money, site reliability engineers are some of the highest paid engineers out there uh, because it's a, it's a stupid hard job. You have to have such a deep technical knowledge, but also know how to like interface a lot of teams, but they get paid a lot because they make sure Netflix and Facebook and Google and Amazon, like all these companies stay up and running. And there's always, for every big tech company you can think of, there's an entire team of people that are like awake all the time. So a lot of teams awake, making sure the site's up and they rehearse like what happens if this cluster goes out or what happens if the server goes down or the hard drive fails, stuff like that. And that goes back also like to something you were saying earlier about like failing backwards, uh, failing gracefully is like, practicing chaos engineering i think that's exactly what you're talking about is like taking the time to practice like what what happens when you know one of your your um, regions is completely taken down and, and that kind of thing so for anyone who doesn't know about chaos engineering it's just sort of like inserting it's called there's a system called chaos monkeys where it, it sort of just inserts chaos into your system and sort of see sees how it responds and um, and then from that, you can learn about like what areas need fixing going forward. It's also, I think it would be interesting to, to mention too, that like we've been talking about code freezes, but some companies don't have the ability to roll back. But there's also, if you have a code freeze, you also need to have like a good process for fixing forward. Because sometimes a rollback is not even a good option, even when you have the ability to say there's like a critical feature that went out and you really need to keep it there for that specific amount of time. You do need to be able to fix forward as well. And having a good process for notifying it and, and breaking the code freeze is, is pretty important in that scenario. Yeah, like hot fixing or doing something incredibly quick because even like your deploy process might take... I don't know, you know, it's, if, if your normal deploy process, it has, you know, running all these like tests and unit tests, integration tests, visual regression tests, like it's doing all these things that could take like an hour to run through all those things for a tiny little code change. Like you have to kind of figure out, is, is your company okay making a call to go faster than that? Bypass those things mm -hmm. to get the fix out because you know it's going to fix something for a customer or you're like, no, we want those quality checks to be there. You know, is that okay for your, your process to get something out fast? A lot of it sounds like, in summary, is a lot of judgment. Like, each of these cases, like, you're having to make a judgment call on the fly. Is it better to hotfix? Is it better to roll back? Is it better to just say, hey, this is, it is impacting customers, but it's a fairly small percentage, and it's risky that we push something, because that could literally be the answer is, like, we need to look at this when everyone's in the office. Yes, that sucks that this person is in that state. Maybe customer support can remove them from that state. But there, I think there's it all comes down to even when you are on call is like making just informed decisions in the moment. And that doesn't necessarily always mean fixing it. Can one of you define hot fix for those not familiar? Hot. <laughs> it's, it's hot. Super hot. Oh, I mean, I, I just typically call it like fixing forward. It's typically like a really well-scoped, very small change that is meant to only address the problem that you're experiencing because anything outside of that introduces risk into sort of features that are out in the wild. So, I mean, typically in my mind, the hot fix is like it happens quickly and it's very small in scope. And those who are deploying it are there to support that fix going forward until it is out and monitor whatever they need to monitor once it's out. And it... it I think the hot is it relates to the speed <laughs> mostly because yeah. people are typically scrambling, but also the scope is very small. Yeah, I think even to get more specific on that, it it means like uh, by by making the scope small means you're let's say you have a depending on what kind of 
deployment flow or Git flow or whatever process that you follow. Maybe your master branch is what gets deployed to production. You have a staging branch or something for a different environment. Um, Hotfix could mean I'm making a branch off of master and that tiny, tiny thing is the only thing that's going to go out. And then you kind of push that back down to staging. So you're not um, possibly accidentally bringing stuff up from staging as part of your fix because that's like not the scope like you want it to be incredibly tiny and and really targeted i feel like we should define staging too oh sorry <laughs> not not everybody has the these concepts yeah i guess staging is a good i mean there's there can be multiple environments too that we could cover like there's you know maybe a test environment qa environment uh staging typically means right before you're about to ship to production it's an environment that is maybe using production data uh, that is like you're making that change to make sure that this is truly going to be what looks like in production uh, right before going out. Yeah. Typically. Maybe, maybe like yeah, similar infrastructure, similar like there's load balancers or stuff that's like emulating a production environment as close as possible. And then also that it uh, you're running your build systems, at least for front end as an example, you're running Webpack prod build, not your dev build. So you're mm. getting assets that are the same as the assets that you would actually push out to prod. But to answer the question, like, how do we keep, how do we make sure our product is working during the holidays? We don't let people touch the code. <laughs> and like, funny enough, I, I think it's hard for a lot of people to accept. They're like, oh, I can't push. What do you mean? Like, I don't write bugs. Maybe Ryan writes bugs, but I don't write bugs. No. I, have you seen my code? No, oh, your, our code's never. good, but someone, someone out there is writing bugs. But that's the I idea. I inject bugs on purpose. <laughs> Whoa. That's true. I reviewed your You PR are the chaos so. monkey. Terrible. Availability. These, <laughs> the, these bugs are not my own. They're Mars's. <laughs> but there's been plenty of studies by plenty of companies that show, you know, there's a correlation to the number of bugs and amount of code that has changed. And it's a weird thing that bugs 90 something percent of the time come from humans. So if you have an environment and you're running with little to no bugs... Don't change anything. <laughs> Don't touch anything and you won't have any bugs. That's an easy way to keep your uptime. There's still hardware failures, stuff like that, but those are fairly rare. One um, interesting thing for Bitbucket is kind of the opposite. So like, I think I'm guessing Netflix traffic goes through the roof during the holidays because people have time off or they're more apt to probably watching. Allegedly. Allegedly. We can't comment. I know. But I'm, that's a guess. Uh, but for Bitbucket... All thoughts are their own. All thoughts are their own. <laughs> uh, for Bitbucket, it's a little bit of the inverse because our, our tool is used a lot by like developers. And so a lot of them are also on, uh, taking holiday time off. So uh, the traffic actually is a little lower than normal. And so it's actually one of the best times of year to do sweeping changes that are, that are maybe what you might consider more risky. So last uh, December, we swapped our entire code base to TypeScript and refactored everything. And we touched every single file in the code base with this. Um, but we did it because we knew like this is a quiet time. There's not very ma many other devs like contributing new features. So when you're doing a massive like refactor like that, it's a little easier because it's not shifting beneath your feet constantly by like other devs on the team doing stuff. And we knew that like traffic was a little bit lower. So the risk of like this having an issue, the scope of that would be maybe a little bit less. So I kind of wondered that with like Atlassian in general, it's like we're talking about these are tools that us as developers are using and so yeah when developers are on holidays the, the traffic is probably going down for you which yeah. is kind of an interesting perspective on the holidays yeah is like yeah it could be peak hours for people 
uh, where it is very high traffic or it could be very low. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's still, you know, it's like, oh, we still need to be really available and not, you know, bring people down. But um, when you look at it, it's like, okay, when should we do this like big sweeping change? Maybe this is the best time. We started to talk a little bit about this, about the benefits or challenges of freezing code. In theory, it just means you're like, Jem, you mentioned not touching the code. And I'd be curious to know, like, what are some of the benefits and challenges that you can all think of? I mean, to Stacey's point, like what she was just talking about, I think it's a great time to do tech debt. Like, yes, because there's yeah. a yeah. no, because there's a code freeze, and also there's typically code freezes on times when people are traveling, so there's less people in the office. Um, it's a good, it's a good time to to take care of stuff you've been meaning to do for a while, so no one's like pushing product features on you necessarily. So. Um, you can fix a lot of things. It's also kind of a Zen moment, you know. Yeah. Sure, definitely a benefit, not a challenge. Not when you're moving thousands of files around. It's a benefit, no, that, not a challenge. I think like even something like moving to TypeScript is like wow, that, that that's massive change, probably for the better of a lot of things in in quality, but also very hard to do like underlying changes when there's a lot of people working on the code base but also customers using it. Mars, I like your point about it. I mean, it's a great time to do refactoring and write tests, people, write more tests. Uh write comments. Comment your code. Comment your code. It, yeah, like all that garbage work you've been like, well, I don't really have time. It's a great time to do it. Uh but what's funny and why people kind of push back what I've seen against code freezes or not making production changes is they're like, well, I made this large refactor, but I don't know if it works because they don't have any tests, they don't have any metrics, and they count on going to production and then someone reporting it being bad as their key metric. And that's where you see people like, well, I don't really want to make any changes because we don't know what the impact would be. You should know what the impact. Like, if you're changing it, you should have metrics back that up and tests. And if you don't, then that's a problem with your infrastructure. It could be a good time for giving breaks, too. We all kind of mentioned no one's around. Well, good. Like, people are taking a break which just can be very great too no i i it's a it's a great time to like take a break and i don't know about everyone's offices but um i do really appreciate that the company that i work for is giving us like two weeks off and i think that and also like at netflix when i worked there previously like there's no explicit two weeks off but everyone no one's around and no one's getting anything done so like how productive can you really be um, you can be very productive be on very- those things where no one's interrupting you or you can just say I need a break and nobody's going to interrupt that either. True. Yes. No, definitely. Like it, it's, it kind of, it goes both ways depending on sort of what you're doing at the time. But I think also one of the challenges of freezing code over the holidays is that like there are people taking breaks, but then there are also people doing these massive refactors. And to Jem's point about they haven't been tested in the wild, the first push after the holidays can always be really, really stressful. Um, and depending on how your push process is, it can be a really, really large challenge that involves a lot of rollbacks or it just involves a lot of like hot fixes or just kind of we pay the price for stability in developer productivity right when the code freeze en- ends. Um, and I think that regardless of what your process is, it's kind of just with code freezes in general across companies, that's pretty known yeah we we all work for i think very you know like well funded or you know companies that have money to buy and pay for all this amazing tooling or build it from scratch like let's say you're working you know for a smaller company that maybe doesn't have all that tooling like they don't have all these monitoring tools like signal effects or data dog i don't know things that help you create dashboards and monitor like how do you as like maybe working for a smaller company or maybe just a freelancer like feel confident about the code that you're about to push 
when you don't have some of these awesome tools. I think there's there's always ways around that. Like I think you're right. Building infrastructure around that is like someone's got to do that or paying for some of the tools. Someone's got to pay that bill. And like maybe this is a two person company that uh, is building something that is just barely scratching to get this out the door versus like, oh, I got millions of dollars spent on some software. I think there's ways that you can do, whether it be leveraging some of the free tools that exist out there. Like maybe you're running Google Analytics. Maybe you can like tie into some of the event logging. Um, Maybe it's just just like sending emails to like, hey, the system's down. Like there there are services out there that uh, can alert you on things. I think you just have to think about it and and what are the ways to, to at least have some monitoring on the health of your system? I think there are ways. This is where it comes down to um, leadership. Oftentimes, the, C- the CTO. I, I like you brought up the point because we we all, other than Mars, who who knows where she works, but we the rest of us work for large tech companies <laughs> who have like SRE or cyber liability engineers and core teams and metrics and all these things. But like someone had to set that up. But if you're at a small startup, we can't expect you to have like an on-call rotation or things like that. That's where you hope the CTO or someone like that says like, hey, it's important we have availability. What's the bare minimum metrics we can send? Even if it's a Perl script that's just running like, is your site returning 200? Is it still up? Like something basic like that, anybody can set up and that's a start and then you you build off that. But I'm glad you brought up that point because it's something I take for granted that we have logging, we have metrics, we have all the system that someone else before me set up. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, of course it works. But at every company, someone has to do it and someone has to own that. And it's not sexy because you're not shipping any product, but it's equal. It's just as important, if not more so than anything else anybody does. Yeah. If your product's not up, who cares? Right. But like, <laughs> I guarantee if we pulled 200 startups, we'd say like, oh, how many of you have like reliability metrics? It'd probably be like less than half. Which is crazy because we're all building the stuff, but like your site or your application doesn't work, then what? What's the point? And I don't. We don't think about engineering in that way. We think like it's terms. We ship more code, things like that. But yeah, if I can't use the site, then like what the hell's the point? We kind of were talking about the benefits of freezing code, Stacey, You kind of even questioned that of like, how does it ship afterwards? That can be a tax. I think there are some challenges in general. Jem hinted at is like if you have canaries, that can really help. But I think there's a lot of even opportunity costs. Maybe you're like, oh my God, this feature is going to be game changing for our users. But you're like reluctant to ship it because it's like, ooh, we're getting close to that freeze where you don't want to add that possible risk. But it could also be a potential upside to your users too. Like I think of that as like, could kind of weigh against each other there. For those scenarios, then maybe, again, this is also probably like your company probably has a lot of money to invest in things like this, but if you can do feature flagging, so maybe that new super critical feature that you need out, um, if it's behind feature flags and you've been able to isolate that code in a way that you know it's not going to execute and cause risk for deploying it, and then you can slowly like turn it on for a segment and turn it on higher if there's no errors and people are you know complaining or opting out or whatever that is. That's a way to like make that less risky. I like the 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 feature flag. That's a great suggestion because that's fairly easy to imp- implement. Anybody, any size company can implement some sort of real time database that's like does the feature on or off. That way, if something goes wrong, you don't have to roll back the entire system. Yeah. It's not this chaotic thing. You're like, oh crap. All right, let me just turn the switch to make it a false. And 
you're done. But I'll say this because we have to jump back to the world of, you know, maybe newer engineers or people at smaller companies. If you're an engineer saying like, hey, I'm not confident in this change. We shouldn't deploy on Fridays. Don't don't deploy on Fridays. But Friday's a terrible time. Don't do that. <laughs> but I I remember that world and I know if you say that as the engineer, you are the unpopular person. You're fighting against product. You're fighting against the product managers like I've worked on this for six months. I want to roll it out. You're fighting against CEO who promised it to some business. You're fighting all these things and you're saying like, no, I'm fresh. I'm a professional. I don't have confidence that this won't break things. Let's not roll it out now. Let's wait until next week when everybody's in the office or something like that. It's a hard conversation to have, but hopefully if your company respects engineers and engineering well, they'll be like, okay, I, I trust you, Stacy. I trust you, Mars. Like, let, let's wait on this i think you have to be thoughtful on how you're presenting it too because i think it's about like arguing the cases and just saying like you could just say oh it's a bad idea okay well why is it a bad idea i think you can try and help bring people along on that case of like what types of risks are there maybe there's ways that you can still ship it but like try and mitigate those risks like almost take care of like the potential risks that it has on it like having it on a fast property which i think is really really great We've talked a little bit about encouraging some practices where you're like monitoring your code and, and the health of your systems, but are there best practices that you'd like to see more companies adopting? Maybe one best practice is we've sort of talked about metrics a lot. Um, and a lot of times, like metrics for metrics sake, especially if you have someone on call during um, a code freeze are not necessarily useful. And a lot of like I've heard really interesting conversations around if you have someone who's on call, if you're a company that is of that size and has that luxury and you do have metrics that you're alerting on, oftentimes it's best to have them tied to business goals or business metrics, um, which is pretty interesting. So sometimes you can be like, oh, is my website re- uh, responding with a 200 all the time? Like that, that's an interesting metric. But if you put that in context, is it responding with a 200 all the time, but also how many people are hitting the site? So you don't want to just alert on that unless you put it in the context of what the business actually wants to deliver to the customer. Um, so I think that that's one thing that I've seen, like, that's a that's an interesting conversation that not a lot of people realize. It's like, oh, this is a metric, but it's not tied to the business at all. Then why alert on it in the first place? Right. It's like thinking of those like critical things too, right? It's like if, login is an important aspect of your site for people to actually access your application might be an important one if like logins are failing at a high rate probably something that's more important but something failing that nobody really cares about or it's a very low volume then why are we panicking on is that kind of what you're getting at yeah exactly and also there's been other situations where there have been metrics that kind of go off the rails and you spend days chasing it down but it actually has no like um bearing on what's actually going on in the business are customers affected probably not and you've spent sort of two days chasing this down and trying to mitigate the effects and but why um so to sort of like find the reasons why you're chasing down these issues and not just i'm chasing down this issue because as an engineer i know this is a bad thing um not as a user they're experiencing anything that actually makes a lot of sense because yeah there are sometimes when there's just like weird errors firing or something in the system is wrong but it's not actually having a customer impact and you're right you could just be chasing this thing at 2 a.m when it's like oh this isn't affecting anyone so it's really understanding like what's the important piece for your customers to to really focus on i like that because there there will always be errors it doesn't matter there will always be some error and if you spend your time chasing that one edge case down you just won't get anything done 
there's always someone who's using a version of Chrome that's like 30 versions back and it, some error. Like what you said, Mars, like find what's critical to your business, build metrics around that, and then like uh, respond based on that. There's been enough instances where like I'm going to buy something and I add it to the shopping cart and I go to check out and it's broken. And I was like, well, all right. They were coming back there. But some engineers probably like, well, the site's up, so I'm good. I'm going home. But like, is that the metric that matters? No, you're, you're trying to sell me something. So you should make sure that process works. It, it's like a basic failure that has been made time and time again. And it'll keep happening. The site available is yeah. key. That's important. Baseline. But you're right. Baseline. Yeah, I think you should be like really careful about on-call and waking people up for things that are worth it. Because you can burn out your employees super fast if you are waking them up for things that are not business critical and not actually really affecting customers if you've set the wrong thresholds. And that's a fast way to like make people very upset because they're losing sleep and they're getting woken up in the middle of the night. And that's not okay. And you're not going to sustain your company if you do that. And, um, you know, I've... I've experienced that in past jobs and it's very, very frustrating where like if you get woken up for something, especially if you don't take steps after to make sure that you do like a review of what happened and why. And um, like at, at Bitbucket in the last year, you do like uh, incident, post-incident response. Yep, we do those as well. PIRs and you talk about it afterwards and you have a discussion about like how can we make this never happen again? And that's so important because if you don't have that and you're an engineer that's like, oh, I guess I'm just going to keep getting woken up, you know, once a week for this same thing that no one's fixing. Like, that's demoralizing, and it's not a good way to run your business. So there's there's lots of balances there to make sure you're doing the right stuff. We're all going to make mistakes, but for continually making the same mistake over and over again, it's kind of like a failure. It's yeah. like, yeah, how can we mitigate this risk, or how can we, like, fix this issue long term? And, and I 100% agree with you, is even the smallest, like, mistake or issue that happens Let's have a discussion around that. How do we prevent that from happening again? And I, I would say to that, uh, and shout out to Mars, who was on call for like years. Is that why she left Netflix? That's probably why. <laughs> in, in the oh, long no, run. I woken up at 2 a.m. one too many times. <laughs> so many times. But I, I would say everybody on your team should be on call. Like every engineer at the company at some point should be on call. And not because you're cruel and want to wake people up at 2 in the morning, but because it, it enforces accountability. And the minute you are woken up at 3 in the morning because some outage you triage it and say, like, what happened? Did a push go out? Which is unlikely at 3 in the morning. But did something happen? Why don't we have metrics backing that? Who made this change? Then you, as a pissed-off engineer, go to the other person who made that change. Like, hey, you broke this thing. You don't have any tests or anything around it. You need to fix it. And then you're going to hold them accountable because next time you're on call, you don't want to deal with the same issue. And it just makes everybody realize, like, hey, we should be more thoughtful about the changes we make. They're not just, like, push push on Friday at 4.30 and then we call it a day. Jump on a flight to like Hawaii oh, or something. Do you know any you know issues I've seen with that? Like someone pushes and then like gets on a flight. Uh, one thing that I think is also important is uh, for those post incident reviews is to make them a little bit blameless. Uh, try not to like call out a single person and for throw sure. them under a bus or whatever. And well, because everyone's going to make mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And, like, and you don't want to be like shame for it. It's yeah. like, cool. Let's fix that. But that person's done going to know. And then also like then just reward like. Make it like a positive reinforcement thing like, oh, the team wrote, you know, X number of new tests or N, N tests or whatever. Reward that and be like, out of this thing that happened that was bad, we improved the quality this way. I also like what Jem said, too. Of, like You're kind of building empathy to fix these problems, like mitigate them. If everyone has experience being on call, they start to like really 
build empathy and think about that. Like, what am what is my change going to do to affect someone so I'm not waking them up in the middle of the night? But I also think being on call is another opportunity for learning a lot. Like, there's been many times that I don't know exactly what the problem is, but you're you're quickly like trying to debug, asking a bunch of questions. You're not prepared for it because if you were prepared for it, why would the issue happen if you knew what it was going to happen? And so you you learn really quickly too. I think it's there's a lot of benefits to it as well. Yeah, and the operational knowledge that you get, like like not just the accountability that Jem's mentioning, but like the operational knowledge you can take back into your own work and be like, hey, I know I'm going to ship this. Someone has to have context around it, not just me. Because um, if I hop on a plane to Hawaii at 4 p.m., someone's <laughs> going to have to deal with you know whatever bugs I've shipped. I want to hop on these planes to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of each episode, we like to choose picks of things that we found interesting or we really like and would like to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table and share today's picks. Mars, you want to start it off? Well, so the holidays are coming up. So my first pick is going to be a trashy TV show that is a guilty yes. pleasure. Um, if you, well, even if you don't admit that you like the Bachelor franchise. <laughs> Um, and you do secretly like the bachelor franchise you may also like a show called love island which is (laughs) which is the uk's version version of um the bachelor franchise um and actually it's i think it's a little bit better it's less dramatic it's like more mundane it's amazing wait wouldn't that be worse like you want more drama right no you want drama but this is like literally in one season 60 episodes of people just having random conversations with all of these people on love island and trust me i have watched 60 episodes of love island that's why we haven't seen mars for a bit yeah no i've been hermiting (laughs) watching watching this show um so if you're into that kind of thing i recommend it um the second one is a podcast called Bay Curious. So if you live here in the Bay Area, it's a podcast put on by KQED, which is our local NPR station. And I think it's really well put together. It, it they, The topics range from um, really kind of trivial topics to really deep topics. So like stuff about homelessness from all the way, like why the fat around jeans originated in San Francisco those types of things. Um, my favorite one actually is like why SFO is always delayed. That is a fascinating episode. If you are at all like um, a flight nerd like me, then you might enjoy that. I always just thought it was the fog. No, it actually has to do with one of the runways. Ooh. Mm. And now I've got to go listen There's to confusion this. and fog. And, yeah, fog is all one right. of them, but the runways, the way they're oriented towards each other. Anyways, listen to it if you really yeah, want to get no, into I'm it. I'm curious now. <laughs> are you bay curious? Bay curious. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, what do you have for us? All right, I've got two music picks. Uh, the first one is Dust Circles by Lasile. It's very, it's a little bit of a different pick. Uh, it's much more ambient. Um, he's a composer and a producer. Um, so it's really great for like incredibly calm coding, very, very chill um, background music. And the second one is Luminous Spaces by John Hopkins and Kelly Lee Owens. Um, both of them, I think, are uh, based out of England. Um, both producers, um, there's some lyrics in this, so probably not maybe necessarily good coding, uh, music, but is, uh, it's, it's, uh, a good song nonetheless to listen to. So recommend that. Right on. Jim, what do you have? Uh, I've got three picks today. Uh, my first pick is, I don't know if I want to call it a Valley Silicon pick. I think I will. The Pixel 4. Uh, <laughs> you have the Pixel 4? I do have the Pixel 4 because I'm, I... I was a big Pixel fanboard, pure pure Android, Google, they know what they're doing, going to get the latest releases, all that. 
Um, fortunately, I, I am a subscriber to uh, Ars Technica. It's one of the few sites I do pay for the news because I respect their reporting. But um, Ron, Ron and Medeo wrote an article called The Pixel 4 Overpriced, Uncompetitive, and Out of Touch. And I'm like, thank you. This is exactly my sentiments on the Pixel 4. Like, it's the flagship phone from one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And it's not good. It is, it is like, it seems like they, the result of a lot of different competing teams, like, all trying to get their features in to, like, get a promotion the next year. But altogether, it makes it a completely unremarkable phone. Uh, for example, the camera, which is, like, the highlight of any any uh flagship phone you know the iphone has three three cameras and all that samsung galaxy has many cameras now yeah the pixel 4 has the same camera as the pixel 3 like hardware wise they didn't change a thing and this is their flagship look at us phone uh they included a 90 hertz refresh rate which is awesome but it was disabled most of the time because anything under like a certain screen brightness you weren't getting 90 hertz so like what's the point of adding that feature in they included like a radar and always on radar chip, which is awesome because if I have my phone and it's like off, I can swipe my hand over it and it turns on because it's cool. The radar is always on. These are all great features that like, really cool. You can tell a lot of teams put work into this. They left the battery the same size as they did previously. So they added in all these features, but didn't add the battery. It's like so it, like it literally dies in less than a day. I don't know. It, it, it's my Valley Silicon pick because clearly they spent billions of dollars in R&D on this. And because there's no like one person overseeing all this, it just comes together this like hodgepodge of a show that's it's kind of a joke. My wife is in the market for a new phone and I'm not getting a Pixel 4. I might move to an iPhone this year, even though we've done <gasps> Android for years because like I'm so offended that they would release this phone. That's blasphemy coming from you. I know. I, I love Android, but like this phone's a joke. It, it's anyways, read the article on Ars Technica. They sum it up really nicely, like all of my beefs with this phone, the lack of fingerprint reader and anything else anyways <laughs> always good rant um i feel very passionately about this <laughs> if you can't tell um my next uh is an is an article uh it's called the efficiency destroying of tidying up and it really resonated well with me because the, the overall premise is that if you look at a complex system you can say you walk into uh let's say i walk into a brand new company i just started uh let's say i'm mars and i walk into this brand new company and it's just like craziness there there's stuff going on there's like code getting merged uh i don't know there's like conveyor belt of something going on you're like what what is this craziness i'm gonna come in and fix it but this this article postulates that actually no efficient systems look chaotic they look crazy they look like they don't make any sort of aesthetic sense so like designers would be offended by an efficient system because it's just like craziness but that's actually what an efficient system look like uh looks like so one of the examples they give is um a pizza and if you made it an aesthetically pleasing pizza like all the toppings would be on one slice and the other toppings would be on this slice and you're like oh wow this appeals to my aesthetic sense this is beautiful but no a good pizza has topping spread everywhere it's kind of random and crazy but it works and that's their argument for like what an efficient system looks like is it looks like chaos until you understand it. And then you understand like every part has a piece and they're all working together in harmony. Uh, and they say like what destroys efficient system is someone coming in like a consultant to me. I'm like, this is crazy. This person's in this meeting, this person in this meeting and they ruin the efficiency of the system that was built in. It's a really interesting way of thinking about systems and engineering in general. It applies to 
like a country that I visited to recently also, like uh, from the outside. It's like an emergent system, It, but it's very efficient and it makes a lot of sense. And actually, I would argue some of the best drivers in the world live in that country as opposed to... I can confirm this Yeah, based on my experience also. Yeah. I was like, how is this possible? What oh my gosh, but it's possible. India. Yeah. I've heard things about the it's traffic like, there. It looks like chaos. It, but, it, it does. It looks like chaos. But it but moves. I, but it moves and it has very little order to... Well, what we perceive as order and most of, one of the most efficient lights, traffic systems I've ever seen. If they had stoplights, it would break down and not work. It, if, it, if you obeyed yeah. stoplights, if, if you obeyed them, it would break everything down. Yeah. Just to speak to that same point, yeah. That's a fantastic example. Yeah, like... But if you're like, oh, I'm an American, I'm coming here and I'm going to put stoplights everywhere because that's whatever. The, that's the order that we know. Yeah. yeah. And you destroy the efficiency of the system and things are worse then because you didn't understand that. And um, funny enough, there's actually a principle called Chesterton's Fence, if you want to look up on Wikipedia. But it's the idea of that you're wandering, you're wandering down the road, there's a fence in the middle of a field and you're like, and a gate. And you're like, what the hell is this fence? There's, there's nothing around. And I'm going to rip out that fence. But actually, it was holding back like crazy bulls or like something. But the idea is you come in and because it offends you and you don't understand it, you destroy it. But someone put it there for a reason and you just are too lazy to figure out or like can't be bothered to figure out what that reason is. I don't know. Like when you think about system design, it's like a really fascinating principle, especially like old school engineering and the number of people that have been destroyed by like. What does this? What does this code do? I'm gonna delete it because I don't know what it does, and like the whole system goes down because they couldn't be bothered. Yes. Anyway, so yes. old story. Uh, sorry, that was that was longer rant than normal, but it's the holidays, and I don't know if you all know, but I love Christmas, so I'm in a good mood. Um, my final pick is the TC39 committee. That is the Technical Committee 39, um, part of the ECMA organization, which does standards for many things, many, many, many things that uh, interact with you. But as far as most people need to know, TC39 is the committee that makes JavaScript, uh, the language that you all know and love, the most popular language in the world. Jim's a part of it. High five. Way to ruin it, Stacey. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I, yes. I am officially part of the TC39 committee. I was in the last meeting here in San Francisco, and we I'll be part champagne. of the... We do need more champagne. So many cheers. This is very exciting. Yes. Um, it is interesting seeing how JavaScript gets made and how new features get added and the amount of work that goes into it. I say on average, a proposal takes about two years to get through. So if you have a good idea today, it will take two years of arguing, debating, and literally debating and like arguing people, not like heated, but like really, really technical stuff that you couldn't imagine goes in. So before someone adds like, I don't know, um, optional chaining just got added into stage four, so it'll be official. Before people say, like, this is stupid, I don't like the way it's designed, know that, like, hundreds of hours of thought went into this. And honestly, it's it's humbling to be part of, like, with all these really, really smart people that, like, have this deep, deep knowledge of JavaScript that I hope to achieve someday. But my proposal I'm going for is object.gem. Uh, don't know what it's going to do yet, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see if uh, 2022 I can uh, squeeze that I think in. I it'll print out a Valley Silicon pick every time. In the console. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Just randomly pick some nice Valley Silicon yes. picks. Object.jam. I'm going to make it happen. All right. So I have three picks, which actually started out as two, but I'm adding a third. <laughs> All right. So a music pick, which I usually don't normally pick. But I was so pumped. Jay-Z is on Spotify. So I'm just going to call that one out. Is was he like, not before? Uh, I, maybe at some point he was, but then wasn't. And then it was only like certain songs that he was maybe on like the lincoln park songs and things like that and so no he is fully on spotify which is awesome 
so happy about that. And then uh, I love, it's funny. It's like you, you were talking about Google products and your gem saying like, usually Google products are really great. And the Pixel 4 wasn't They're one. They're decent. Okay. All right. Fair. Great. I, I'm a big fan of the Nest products, I, I, which now Google owns as owned for a while. Uh, I recently installed the doorbell and it's great. I love it. They got a little camera in it. Uh, you can like change the chime of the doorbell. You can turn it off if like you don't want people to be disturbed. I kind of like it. Really, really nice little uh, addition to the home. That's nice when you have a little one sleeping. You don't want the ding dong. Yeah, that is a really good one because sometimes even like the good old Amazon packages coming, they just ring the doorbell to let you know that the package is there. But guess what? A video camera will tell you that it's there. I don't need to be a doorbell person on that. So it, it is kind of nice to be able to turn that off. And then my third pick, which we kind of alluded to earlier in the episode, The Irishman. I really liked it. It was a great, it was a little long. Um, I could have A shaved, little long. I could have shaved 15 minutes off, but I think it was a, a really good story. Maybe if you watch it in parts, I've seen some things on like Reddit where people are like, oh, if you watch this part, you can stop and then come back to it. I think it was a really good story. Yes, it's not the like most exciting story, like where it's like epic all the time, but I, th- I think all in all, it was a very good film. I mean, Martin Scorsese is an amazing director. It was good. So Gem and I are going to debate this one later offline, but I really liked it. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. You can follow us on Twitter at FrontNHH. Any last words? Don't ship it. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the holidays. Enjoy the holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs>